Well, hello, whenever it is that you're watching this, glad that you're with us online. My name's Aiden, one of the pastors here at the Norton Campus of Grace, and I'd love to meet you. Sometimes I don't know who I'm talking to, right? So, sometimes I do, sometimes I'm not sure who I'm talking to online. We'd love for you to email us, kind of introduce yourself if we haven't met before, but you're glad, I'm glad that you guys are checking this out. I, uh, a couple years ago, had a, a, a now friend, but he was new to kind of the Akron area, new to Grace Church. He's working at one of our campuses, and he was trying to make some connections, so he invited my wife and I to go out and get some ice cream with him and his wife, and we had a great time. We uh, we had a great time. They they're a little, tend to be a little bit of a quieter couple, and my wife and I... Um, Sometimes we overcompensate a little bit. When couples are quiet, we kind of get into bits and we tell a lot of crazy stories and sometimes we can be a lot. But so we, we had a we had a fun time with this couple and um, you know, we, we got in the car after talking with them, telling all of our stories and whatever, and we're like, think they'll ever tie invite us out again? And we're like, I don't know. I don't know. We're a lot sometimes. But I, I hadn't heard from him for a while, and so we we'd tease around, like, yeah, I mean, we scared him off, we scared him off. Hadn't heard from him a while, but Later on, I, I made a joke to him years later about how me and my wife Sarah, how like we we were a lot probably scared you off, didn't we? And he said, "I'll be honest with you, man." <clears throat> he goes, "I got confused for a while because I knew your name was Aiden Finn, and he on some social, I think Instagram, uh, this name Aiden Finn started following him on Instagram, and he thought it was me. Well, this this person uh, was an avid action figure photographer." So I met this guy, this guy is new to Grace, and he meets me and my wife, and we have a fun time, we're a lot, and then I start following him on Instagram, and I apparently am a grown man who takes really awesome detailed pictures of superhero action figures, and that's my entire Instagram feed. We come to find out that there's a middle schooler who goes to his church who's First name is Finn, and his middle name is Aiden, and he got us mixed up. For years, he thought that I was a totally different person than I actually <coughs> was. He thought I was an action figure photographer. Sometimes, our first impressions of people, or the ways that we understand people, sometimes there's a small fraction of who they actually are, if it's correct at all. Sometimes it's a distortion, it's a misunderstanding of who that person actually is. And sometimes this can be the case when it comes to God. That we, we get bits and pieces or maybe misunderstandings or our first understanding of who God is is either a fraction or a total distortion of who he actually is. Sometimes this is based on our upbringing. Sometimes this is based on negative experiences. Sometimes it's based on experiences that we have with people who claim to follow God or know Jesus. And that changes us to have a certain mindset about God, about his church, about who God is and what his nature is like. For the sake of today, I would, I would challenge you. I want to ask, ask you this question. And you can answer out loud because you're by yourself. Maybe. If you were to finish this sentence, God is. God is blank. What, what would you say? Now, you might be a church person. You answer real quick. God is love. God is omniscient. He is omnipotent. Whatever. That you might answer that quickly. But I would encourage you to pause for a second. When you really think about God, maybe it's your subconscious, the way you communicate with God. When you think about God, what comes to mind, how would you finish that sentence? Is he loving? Is he angry? Is he, oh, he's just accepting of everything? Is, oh, I read some stories in the Old Testament. He's very vengeful. Maybe you think he's very involved in all the little nitty-gritty things of life. Maybe you think that he's distant. He doesn't really care about those things. Maybe he's kind of this, this deity of kind of an American subculture, whatever your subculture may be. Maybe he's someone, something to be studied. We find him in theology textbooks, right? Maybe he's this abstract concept. Maybe you're watching this and you're like, yeah, God's kind of like the universe. Like he's kind of all around us. Maybe if you've been around church for a while, God is, he's kind of run of the mill. 
He's predictable. Maybe you, you've got God figured out, and so he lives in a nice little box. You might not say that, but when you really think about the way in which you interact with God, that's kind of what shows up. There is a, an old author from the late 1800s, mid-1900s, named A.W. Tozer, and he says this. Dan mentioned this last week. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move towards our mental image of God. And that's such a, an interesting quote if you think about this. And for some of us, we don't take the time to think about this. Whether we, what, what we think about God, or maybe we don't even think God exists, or maybe we think that he is any of those things that we mentioned, it changes the way that we see ourselves about how this God relates to us. It changes the way we relate to other people. How does, how does God see his people? How does he expect me to interact with these people? Changes the way I see the problems in the world. Is it just a happen chance of things or is there involvement from this creator God? How to, how to navigate our pain, how to navigate the problems of the world, how do we cling to hope? That what we think about when we think about God impacts all these existential things as well as the details of our lives. And so what we are doing is we are in the series called God Is. And what we want to do is that we are all coming to the scriptures, all coming to the idea of God with all kinds of different concepts, uh, presuppositions, kind of influences, biases. And what we want to do is we want to walk through one passage, the, the passage that you heard before this, this sermon started. And it's a passage out of Exodus 34 in the Old Testament, second book of your Bible in the Old Testament. And this, this verse where, where God kind of says what he is like, this is what a passage where God says, this is who he is. This is what he is like. This is almost God's self-disclosure of himself. This passage is the most quoted verse of the Bible by the Bible. The Bible's collection of 66 books, all kinds of poetry and history and letters and prophets writing to certain people, all kinds of things. And this passage, what God says about himself is the most repeated throughout the scriptures. Prophets reference what God says about himself. The psalmist references what he says about himself. Different aspects in history reference who God says that he is, what he says about himself. Most quoted in the Bible by the Bible. And the reason that we are having this series, that we wanted to double click and talk about this passage, is that we want to dial in our focus not on our idea of who God is or our culture's idea, our subculture's idea of who God is. But we want to unpack the nature, the characteristics of who God says he is. And in doing so, we want to draw parallels between God's self-description of himself in the Old Testament and his self-revelation of the person of Jesus we see specifically in the New Testament. Sometimes we can have these two different ideas of who God is, Old Testament God, New Testament God. We kind of want to erase that so that we might see that God is God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God revealed, and that we draw these parallels between who God says he is. So, here is the passage. I'd encourage you to read it with me. I would encourage you over the next six weeks to memorize this passage. Memorize this together. It's just a couple verses. Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7. And he, it's God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. I know it's hard to get past that. We're going to dive into that on the last week together. Stick around. There's actually a lot more grace in that than you may realize. But let's pray as we jump into this today. God, as we unpack this, I pray that you would help us see you for who you really are. 
that all of us have distortions and biases and pictures of you that are maybe just incomplete. And so I pray that you would help us to have a clear view of your heart and your character and your nature that you might challenge us. That sometimes our view of who you are is lopsided. And so I pray that that your spirit would bring just kind of an equilibrium to our hearts on just your character and your nature. That we might see you and hear you for who you really are and who you say you are. Amen. All right, now what I want to do real fast is as we work our way to this passage where God says who he is in Exodus 34, it's not like it's just like his like Twitter profile where he's just like, I love the Hebrew people creating things, the number seven, and this is in this, right? Like we think that God just kind of dropped it out of nowhere, but there's a story that leads up to God revealing who he is. And so very quickly, got a little timeline for you. In the beginning, we see, we see Genesis. Genesis, God creates all things, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity are present in creation, and God creates everything out of love. All the other kind of myths and stories of the time were the gods creating out of anger and out of hate and out of almost conflict with one another, but God of the, of the Bible, God of the Hebrews, creates out of love. And just a chapter, a couple chapters later, we see the fall, that there's this temptation that we, the created ones, can be like God. We can do this on our own. And this is kind of a rinse and repeat pattern all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, into our lives today. And so after the fall, God begins redemption through one man. His name was Abram. God renames him Abraham. And through this one man, God's story of redemption of bringing people back to himself would come through his family. That he makes this promise with Abraham that I will bless you. You will be the father of many nations. That your offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky. And through this family line, all people will be blessed is the promise that God makes with Abraham. And we see, we kind of follow throughout Genesis. Abraham gives birth to Isaac in old age, that him and his wife give birth to Isaac. And Isaac uh, gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob is kind of, they're all kind of a little sketchy dudes at, uh, oftentimes. But, but Jacob literally wrestles with God. And God renames Jacob Israel. And Israel is God's people, if you read the Old Testament. And Israel literally means to wrestle with God. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we see that this family of Abraham kind of multiplies into a people. That, that Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons, and we see them in Egypt. And then you jump to the, the next book of the Bible, uh, Exodus. You open Exodus, and we are in Egypt about between 250, 300 years later. And this, this family, these 12 brothers, have grown into the slave labor force of the superpower of Egypt. That in, within Egypt, the people are growing, the Israelites are growing to be such a big population in Egypt that Pharaoh's getting nervous. Pharaoh's uncomfortable with what is happening here. And so he orders that the firstborn sons of all the Israelites be killed. And so we see, we see Moses kind of appear on the scene. Moses is a baby. You might have heard the story, Prince of Egypt. Uh, Moses' mother puts him in a basket, floats him down the river. One of Pharaoh's daughters finds Moses in this basket, raises him as their own. Moses is this Israelite who is raised in the house of Pharaoh. And later on, as Moses is older, he's kind of lives in this conflict of being raised in the house of Egypt, but also being an Israelite. And he sees his people being oppressed. And what happens in the early parts of Exodus is we see him kill an Egyptian to protect his people. And what happens is he ends up fleeing into the wilderness. That Moses flees into the wilderness. He becomes this shepherd. And what happens is that God, God, the creator God, appears to Moses. 
appears to Moses in Exodus 3. And if you got your Bible in front of you, I put a little star in front of Exodus 3. That God appears to Moses and he calls Moses that he is going to go and rescue his people out of Egypt. That Moses is going to be the one to lead God's people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, you got the wrong guy. I'm not a very good communicator. You're going to have to try someone else. And God's like, it's going to be you. And look at what happens in Exodus 3. And God said, we see, we see God appearing in this, this burning bush, showing up to Moses in this presence in this burning bush. And God said, I will be with you. Got my clicker. I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, we will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have sent me to you. And what if they ask me, Moses is talking to God, what if they ask me, what is his name? Who is this God? Moses says, what shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. That literally means I will be what I will be. This is who you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Like God's like, my name is I am. I don't change. I am. Like he exists. Like this all encompassing name. Now, now hold that on a sidebar. We're going to swing back to that. Exodus 3. So Moses and his brother Aaron go back and they kind of wage plague war on Egypt, right? We see all these plagues. We see Pharaoh harden his heart. We see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's kind of this thing to wrestle with. And what we see is that all these plagues that happen in Egypt, boils and the rivers turn to blood and livestock are dying. There's all kinds of bugs and frogs and stuff and darkness. That these, these plagues are specific attacks on the gods of Egypt. And what happens is you get to the last plague. And the last plague is that the firstborn of each household will die unless the, the, a perfect lamb is slaughtered and the doorpost is covered in blood. This is what is called Passover. Israelite people still celebrate today. Passover, right? That just as Pharaoh killed the firstborn of the Israelites, God, this final, this final plague would be the death of the firstborn unless you are covered by the blood that God provides this way out. And what happens is that Pharaoh loses his own firstborn son and he says, get these people out of my land. So Moses leads the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. Moses or Pharaoh's people come after Moses and Israelites. God closes the sea and God delivers his people from Egypt. He delivers his people from Egypt. And what we see next is that they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. God leads his people through the desert, a pillar of smoke during the day, pillar of fire by night, and leads his people to the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is where we land. This is where we end up. And almost picture this wedding ceremony. God made this promise to Abraham. This is the relationship we're going to have. This is who you are going to be, a light to all nations, that people might see you and they might know what I am like. And so they say, they say, yes, God delivers them out of Egypt and they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. Almost picture this wedding ceremony type of idea where God is going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. He's going to say, he's going to give them the laws, which we kind of get caught up in, but these laws are meant to communicate his heart to the world. And some of them, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, are pretty confusing, right? But there's this grace compared to all the other nations that we see of God's people. And it's this wedding ceremony where he gives them the Ten Commandments. We see some laws given out and God's people say, we will do it. That God's people come to the foot of Mount Sinai and we see God showing up like a storm, thunder, lightning, trumpets coming down on the mountain. And we see kind of this wedding ceremony idea happen. 
He gives them the commandments and the people say, we will do it. We will be your people. We are married. And so what happens is Moses goes up to mountain to get these tablets written in stone. See a movie from like the early 1800s or something. And Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And you almost see that one camera angle where, where Moses is on the, the mountain with God. And there's almost this other, this other camera angle that happens. And look at this. This is so important. Exodus 32. We're working our way up to Exodus 34, right? Still with me? Still with me? Come on. And this is what happens. God, Moses is up on the mountain with God, and almost the other camera goes down the mountain. And this is what happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down, Moses was up there for 40 days. He was up on the mountain with God for 40 days, and people got restless. He was long in coming down from the mountain. So what they did was they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They're like, yeah, that Moses guy, you know, the Moses guy who did the plagues, who got us out of here, who's been the mouthpiece for God. Uh, he's, we, you know, MIA. And Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and they brought them to Aaron and he took them and handed them. They gave them to Aaron and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool then the people said, "These." then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And what we see is God is ticked. There's a ceremony. Finally, they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. They're writing everything in stone. Moses goes up with God to solidify everything. And meanwhile, the people have an affair on the Lord. They're like, you took, it's 40 days. They've been in slavery for like 300 years, like 40 days. Let's just try something else. Make us our own God. And God has ticked and we see some hard things happen. And what happens is, is we end up seeing Moses in the tent talking with God, kind of working this out, reminding God of the covenant that he made with his people. But I almost want to sidebar for a second that we are all like Israel. We all end up in this, this same sense. When they make this golden calf, they aren't creating a new God necessarily. But, uh, but Aaron says, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. That they're not making new gods, but their own version of God. That the Israelite people are making their own version of God. That when God seems to be taking a while, we can be no different. We turn to our own ways of doing things. We find ourselves in a hard place. We find ourselves waiting on God. And we're like, yep, we're, Jesus, we're going to follow you. We're going to do what you've called us to do. And then he takes like 14 minutes and we're like, all right, let's turn to something else. Who's the president that can help me? What's the next self-help book that can, that can help me? What's the next financial plan that can help me? What's the next girlfriend that can help me? And we turn to other gods real quick because Jesus takes too long. And what happens is we, become, we begin defining what God looks like, that he becomes manageable, controllable, and made from our own hands, or at least our concept of God. And we, he's made in our own imagination, just like the Israelite people do. And this, I think, is how we end up with misunderstandings and distortions of who God is. We become impatient with the slow process of following Jesus. And so we create God in our own image. If we are Republican, he's Republican. If we're a Democrat, he's a Democrat. If we're affirming of certain things, he's affirming of certain things. If, if we don't like conflict, we're kind of passive people, uh, he, he, ends to, he ends up being passive as well. If we want wealth and happiness, by golly, he's ready to dole it out because we've created a God in our own image. We are just like Israel. So Israel has this affair on God. Now come back to Moses. Moses is talking to God. They're looking at what this looks like moving forward. It's this interesting picture, but in Exodus 33, look at this. 
Sorry, I didn't skip that for you guys earlier. Exodus 33. Moses says to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses doesn't want just the things of God. He doesn't want just the protection of God. He doesn't want just the instruction of God. Moses wants God himself. And this is what he's leading the people towards. And this is when we show up at Exodus 34, this whole background of the nation of Israel. God reveals himself in the, in the, the fiery bush in Exodus 3, saying, I am. And we end up here in Exodus 34. Now, what I want to do for the sake of today is we are just kind of introing the series is I want to make just two observations from the story and from this passage specifically because there is some tension here as we read it. That he's faithful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, but he won't leave the guilty unpunished. There's some, there's some stuff that feels hard to wrestle with here. And I just want to kind of set the stage a little bit as we, for the next five weeks after this, unpack each aspect of the character of who God says he is. First observation of kind of this self-definition. This is, this is going to be simple, but I feel like I just have to touch on this. It's simply this, that God is powerful. God is powerful. I'll, I'll be honest, sometimes even, even preparing this, you're like, it's hard to put this in the words. It's hard to give us a picture. It's hard to kind of, how do you, how do you explain the all-encompassing, holy, powerful nature of who God is? But it's crucial that we at least try to lean into this general direction or else Jesus and the scriptures and the gospel itself lose their teeth. If God is not powerful, if he's not holy. If you read the Old Testament, some of you are reading through the, the, the whole Bible in a year and you get this Old Testament stuff and you wrestle through it, that's okay. You don't have to put your head on the pillow and be like, I'm cool with all that, no problems here. There should be some tension about just the, the holiness of God, the wrath of God. The power of God. It's okay to have some tension in your heart about that because God is powerful. He's not this dainty deity that we can mold and form to fit our own preference. That's the calf. That is not the God of the mountain. That's the the golden idol that we've created. That's the God of our American subculture that we've created. That's not the God of the Bible. That he is mighty, he's powerful, eternal, holy, judge, creator. He created all things. He sustains all things. He delivered his people from Egypt. He split the Red Sea, led them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. Leads them to the, the foot of Mount Sinai. A.W. Tozer, the same guy who said what we think about when we think about God is important. He says this. I think it's important. In the same book, he says, The concept of majesty has been lost from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking or worshiping men. That God for us is kind of a joke. That we read the whole, like these tablets of stone that God gave to Moses on the mountain that he came down from the mountain with, like we read it on our phone. And if we get a notification from TikTok, we flip over and watch it. Like we have made God so small. We've made it small and unholy and not majestic. We made it manageable. And so we read these passages about certain things in the Old Testament, about the power even in this passage about God. And we're like, I'm not sure I like that. You don't get the power of God. Just look at, look at chapter 19. Look at chapter 19. Look at, look at what, how we see this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. This is when they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Like this powerful picture of the storm. Years ago when I was in college, I went to, did some classes down at Wayne, down in Orville. And, I, and one day it was summertime and there's no one around. And I was walking into this one building and I saw, I don't know if you can see it. I saw this, this like crazy cloud. Like I snapped to my phone and I was walking up and I'm like, that is terrifying. This might be the last day in my life. Like, I hate storms. I don't know about you. I'm not a big storm guy. But when, like, a storm comes, you feel, like, the power of the storm. And if I stand there and I'm like, I don't really like that storm. Storm doesn't care. Storm is all-powerful. As we read through the story of God, as we wrestle with this disclosure of who God is, we have to wrestle with the fact that God is powerful. He's powerful. We have to start there with the holiness and the perfection, the power of God. But what we see, what we see in this passage is that God is powerful, but God is personal. God is personal. And for the rest of our time, it's kind of where I camp out today. And I want you to, to kind of just go with me. God is personal, not in just this kind of general nice sense. But there are some things in this passage we're going to unpack that if we kind of sail over, we can miss. The beginning of this passage says, the Lord, the Lord. When something in Hebrew is repeated, when we see it happen twice, it's almost like right now we would type in all caps or we'd bold or underline something. It's almost what it's like when something gets repeated. The Lord, the Lord, his name is the first thing that happens. That God has a name. God is this personal God. Think about this. Sometimes, sometimes in our culture, names have meanings. Oftentimes, we pick names based on uh, just it sounding cool, right? And that's not bad. We, we like the way something sounds, and so we name it that. And if it has a meaning, that's just an extra plus, right? Uh, our firstborn uh, son, his name is Camden. And we, you know, it's hard sitting on those websites trying to find names. They just have to hit you right. And so we stumbled upon the name Camden. We both said, hey, we like that name. And then we found out that, it, that the meaning of Camden means from the winding valley which we said, hey, we like the way it sounds. That's most important. But hey, it's got meaning too. Because we were at a stage in life where there was just a lot of loss and pain kind of going on while, we were, uh, we, while my wife was carrying uh, this little fella. And so we said, hey, from the winding valley is so appropriate. Our second born, his name is Colby. And Colby means faithful dog. <laughs> and in high school, uh, my, my youth passed. We, I was you know, similar to how I am now in high school. I've talked a lot, would say a lot of random things, mumbled even more, and I was just kind of random and loud. And one time, my youth pastor at the time, he named me Donkey. Not for the reasons you're thinking, but because of this guy, Eddie Murphy's character from Shrek. That's why he named me Donkey. I think I'm, I think that's still deep in my subconscious. I'm still recovering from it. But, but we get named certain things, right? And sometimes our names have meaning, but oftentimes they just sound cool. In the old, this is so important. In the Old Testament, and this is maybe old cultures in general, a name wasn't just like an identifier. Like I'm picking up my Chipotle and waiting to hear my name so it can identify me. But our names, the names in the Bible, that it was your character, it was your destiny, it represented the calling on your life. Who you were was wrapped up in your name. Abraham, Abraham, the, the, the one who God makes this promise with, the, the father of everything. Literally, Abraham means the father of the multitude. This is who he is. 
right? His, his firstborn son, Isaac, of whom this promise was going to come through. They gave birth to him in their old age. When God said to Abraham's wife that you are going to give birth to a son, she laughed because she was old. And literally the name Isaac means one who laughs, rejoices. That, that, that Isaac's son, Jacob, that changed his name to Israel, which literally means wrestles with God. And we'll see the story all throughout scripture of God's people, what? They wrestle with him. It's their destiny. It's their meaning. Jesus. Jesus, which is also the name Joshua, Yeshua, literally means God is salvation. That these weren't just names that sounded cool, but names in the scripture, in the Old Testament, names had a calling, a meaning, a description of your character. And so in Exodus 3, where Moses meets God in the burning bush, and he says, my name is I am. It's literally the Hebrew first person. You could say, Hayah. It's kind of like karate. Hayah. It's literally is what I am is. It's the first person. I am. Hayah. But third person, we're saying he is, is Yahweh. You may have heard this before. We kind of fly over it. Maybe it's just another way to refer to God. But Yahweh is the personal name of God. He is. Yahweh is the personal name of God. There's many ways that God is referred to in scripture. And it's important for us to know it's not a, just a bunch of ways of saying the same thing, right? Like, Aiden doesn't have a lot of different ways to say. Aiden is Aiden. Like, if I'm going to be a doctor one day, they're going to be Aiden. If they're going to shorten it with my buddies, it's going to be Aiden. There's not a lot of ways to chop it. But think about Pastor Dan. His name's Dan. Pastor Dan. I call him boss. His grandma calls him Danny. There's a lot of different ways to say Dan. That's All the names we see in scripture are not just a bunch of ways to refer to the big man upstairs. But there's different meanings. In the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, we see in the beginning, God created. That God is the word Elohim, which is almost this, this description of a, of, a, of a type of being. It's almost this, this um, title, right? Like, like dad or mom is a category of person. Elohim is a category of being, these spiritual beings. Now, I have a specific mom. I have a specific dad. Just as when the Bible talks about God, Elohim, the specific one, God of the Bible, God of the Hebrews. El Shaddai means a mighty God. Adonai is the idea of Lord, right? Kind of the one who is in charge, like the Lord of the land, Adonai. But when we get to Yahweh, oftentimes you see Lord in all caps, if you're reading the Old Testament. Yahweh is God's personal name. And in Exodus 34, this passage unpacking, God is defining his name. He's defining his purpose by saying, he's saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. It shows that he's personal, that he's not just a force or a concept or the universe, but that God is personal because he has a name. This is why oftentimes these overgeneralizations of we all worship the same God, they just simply aren't true. Oh, well, you know, all, all, all women are the same. Whoa. You mean my wife, my daughter, my, they have names. All pastors are the same. You mean Pastor Dan, Pastor Bob? Like naming, oh, well, we all worship God. God is just, hold on, hold on. You talking about Yahweh? Because this is what he's like. This is who he is. We all worship the same God. It's not true. It's just not true because the God that we're talking about is specific. He has a name. He's personal. Eugene Peterson, in one of his books I was just reading, he's talking about how naming leads to specificity. He's talking about how he started bird watching. And before he started bird watching, you just see all these birds. There's a bunch of birds. But once he names them, knows their names, he starts to see a specificity of who they are. He says, what is unnamed is often unnoticed. Naming focuses attention. The precise name confers dignity. 
that God is personal. He has a name. Now, keep going with me. It's important to notice this. I just lost my spot. There we go. All right. That we, as God's followers, as God's people, we carry his name. That God's name communicates who he is and what he is like. And the reason that he takes this so seriously with his people, with his promise with his people, is that he has called the people of Israel and then us as, as New Testament believers in Jesus to be his people, that we have a special relationship to him, that we are called to represent him, to bear his name, that just as the people of Israel be a light of all nations, that the goal was that they might show nations, that they might show all people God's character, who he is. They bear his name. That he partners with people to represent himself to the world. Now, in Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments, if you grew up around church or by the courthouse or anything, one of the Ten Commandments is, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, we think that says, don't say, oh my God. I'm not sure that I have ever in my life. I just grew up, I grew up with a mama that we weren't saying, oh my God. It just, I feel uncomfortable saying it right now, right? But oftentimes, that's what we think of when we think of taking the Lord's name in vain. And now, to some extent, it is. Because we are taking the name of God and we are cheapening it, right? So to one extent, sure. But it's bigger than that. That this word, don't take the name of the Lord, don't take the Lord's name in vain, literally means, it says, don't miscarry. Don't lift up wrong. Don't misrepresent the name of Yahweh. There's a doctor, her name's uh, Carmen Joy Imes, and she says, do I've got the quote on here? Yep, there we go. That literally, uh, she says in her book, the name command in Exodus 20, verse 7, is not limited to some type of blasphemous, unholy speech act. Rather, it involves carrying the divine name in a representational and ethical manner. God's people who are branded or tattooed with his name must bear it obediently and faithfully in every area of life. The idea of taking God's name in vain is the idea of representing God's character to no effect or to ill effect. That God's name is who he is and he has called us to bear his name. And we take his name in vain when we miscarry his name. And we miscarry, we misrepresent the name of God when we use him to get what we really want. We are taking his name in vain. We're taking his character in vain. When we just use him to get what we want. When we invoke him to get our political opinions. When we justify the way we want to live by bearing his name. When we say we are his people, but we live in a way that is contrary, we are misrepresenting the, na the name. And oftentimes, when we think about following God and the commands that he gives us, especially the commands in the New Testament to follow God, we oftentimes we think we do the right thing, do we not do the right thing? And oftentimes, we think about it as following or not following the rule. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Christ, he calls us to be a light, to represent who he is. Literally, the New Testament flushes us out that we are the body of Christ. And he calls us to represent the one that we claim to love, the one who has rescued us to bear his name. Now, keep walking with me. As we unpack the name of God, the power of God, what this passage shows us is that he's powerful and that he's personal. And it's almost this, this tightrope that for the rest of the series, we are going to have to walk and navigate. But I want you to think about this. If God is just powerful, and some of us, when we invoke the name of God, we think of just the power of God. And if he's just powerful, then we kind of try and stay off his radar. Because if we do miscarry, if we do misrepresent his name, we're just trying to stay out of the line of fire, right? We're just trying to, just trying to keep a low profile and stay on his good side, right? And just please the angry deity. If that's all he is, is powerful. But on the other side, if he's just personal, if he's just kind of this casual deity and we can kind of define him however we want, he becomes the golden calf. 
if he's just personal. He's the big man upstairs. That's kind of his flippant attitude of God. But if we walk this tightrope of his, of his power and of his, his nearness, we live in this, t- this tension and now there's security. Because this God who's personal is also this God who is infinite. This God who loves me is this God who is just. This God who died for me is also the God who creates and takes life. And we start to see this tension that we live in the beautiful middle of. And this powerful God who's beyond our capacity to understand that he defines himself in the scripture, that he defines himself in Exodus 34, but he shows up and reveals himself in the person of Jesus. The New Testament says that the full, the full revelation of God is in Jesus. If you want to see what God is truly like, look to Jesus. Oftentimes we think that Jesus is just kind of like the nicer version of God. Old Testament one's tough, but Jesus, he's kind of new. He's a little bit more, you know, with the times. I would challenge you to read New Testament. Jesus says some tough stuff. Jesus lays the hammer down. But we also see that Jesus is full of all his character attributes of God. That God made himself understandable in the person of Jesus. Now look, as Jesus taught us to pray, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9. He te- so God embodied, shows up, teaches us to pray. And he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Because what? Because God's name points to what? His character. That he is abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Not leaving the guilty unpunished. Full of faithful love, compassion, and grace. Hallowed be your name because your name is who you are. And the first thing Jesus teaches us when he teaches us how to pray is that we might see the name, the character of God as wholly important and central. Now, look at this. You still with me? Philippians 2. Jesus, Jesus shows up on the scene. Now, Paul references back to Jesus, says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who though he was in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing. He humbled himself to become like a human, being found in the appearance of man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him what? The name. That is above what? That is above every name, the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Because the name, the name of God reveals this personal nature. The name of God points us to the power. And we, as we follow Jesus, live in that beautiful tension of a holy God who died for us of a perfect God who became human, of a God who is incomprehensible, who has put on flesh. We live in this tension in the name of God that we are called to bear is the name that is given to Jesus. That Jesus is Yahweh. We're going to unpack this in a couple weeks, but Jesus is Yahweh. That specific God, that God who reveals his character in Exodus 34, that that is Jesus. Look at this. In the, in the book of Jude, in the book of Jude, it's kind of one chapter book that we often don't read. Now, I want to remind you, the author writes, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, that Jesus was the one who led the people out of Israel because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the personal God revealed. That as we unpack this for the next six weeks, we are going to have to live in that tension. That God is full of compassion. That he's full of faithful love. That he is slow to anger. 
that God is just, that God isn't just disconnected and doesn't care, that he is involved, that he will not let sin and the, the havoc that it is causing go unpunished and undealt with. We see that where? At the cross. We see that he forgives, not because he's nice, but because he's just. We see that at the cross. And we see that Jesus bears the wrath of God What at the cross, that the, the self-revelation of who God is in Exodus 34 is fulfilled in Christ because Jesus is Yahweh. And so I would encourage you, as, as we walk through this for the next six weeks, pray that God might challenge you to see who he is, that he might challenge you to see Jesus in a more powerful and personal light, that it might challenge our misconceptions of God, that we might not see him the way that we've always seen him, that we might kind of dial in the focus and see him more clearly for who he is. I would challenge you to memorize this passage and wrestle into God as we walk through this together. God, I pray that you would challenge us, that you are holy, that you are powerful, that you are full of, of strength and honor, that you are mighty God, that you are the one who has no beginning and no end, the Alpha and the Omega, but you are the Lord, that you are Yahweh, that you are specific, that you are personal, that you reveal to us what you are like. And so I pray that we would wrestle, that we would live in the tension of a holy God who is present with us, of a powerful God who's made himself personal, that we might bear your name, that we might represent your nature in our relationships and in our decisions and in our speech and in our finances and in our thoughts that we might bear your name and not, not bear it in vain, but that we might represent you for who you really are. We're thankful that you're gracious to us. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.